there must be another son. See, all is, is not well. The times are dark and they're uncertain and by all appearances, everything is falling apart. It's a time of war. It's a time of violence. It's a time of political corruption, religious corruption, a time of defunct leadership. And there is a roughness and there is a wildness to these Iron Age days. And there's rumors about. There's whisperings about King Saul and, and Samuel, this famous and fierce prophet of God. Rumor has it that they're on the outs. That King Saul is doing his own thing and Samuel has come and taken him to task. And God is tearing the kingdom away from the Saul that his spirit is departing. By all appearances, things are not good. Saul, tall, dark, and handsome king. He seems to be disintegrating, dismantling in front of the eyes of the people. But God is on the move. And behind the scenes... He is doing counterintuitive things. Welcome to the book of 1 Samuel. We are going to lean in and work through a number of passages in 1 and 2 Samuel over the coming months. And I'll explain a little bit more why we are doing this series the way we are later towards the end of the sermon. It, it should make sense when we get towards the end. Now, circa... 1025 BC, that's where we are located. It's been more than a few hundred years since God split the impossible sea and he brought his people out of slavery of Egypt and brought them into the fertile soil of the promised land that we know as Israel. But as is the way with human beings, the people's memory has quickly faded and gratitude has dissipated. And they have forgotten that God is their provision, that God is the hero, that God is their king. And over time, they long for what their international peers have. They long for what they see in other nations. They want a human king sitting on a throne. And to make it brief, a king is installed among God's people, a tall chap, handsome guy, Alpha male, dominating physical frame and charisma, literally head and shoulders above everyone else, inordinately tall. The guy just looked kingly, an aura of authority granted to him by sheer force of size and beauty. This is Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. Now things start out okay. God's with this guy, but... Over time, appearances give way to inner realities, and the guy is going to be trouble. He begins to edit down God's commands, twist God's words, and do what he wants, do things his way instead of following the voice of God. And then he blames other people for the mistake. Saul's a disaster. He's, he's like another Adam, right? Well, God calls Samuel to go and confront Saul because Saul has another infraction of not doing what God has said, not trusting God. God is tired of Saul and he is now fired from the throne. The kingdom is to be taken from him and to be given to one of his 
neighbors, to be given to one of his neighbors. There must be another king. There must be another king, and God calls Samuel to go find him. So we pick up here verses 1 through 5. Samuel, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve? Like, I get you love Saul. And that's good, and that's right. You anointed him, but it's time to move forward. We must anoint another king. And so he does, off to the hill country of Bethlehem. A lot of hills, a lot of wheat, a lot of sheep. And when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, eyebrows raise, and the, the, the leaders of the, the town come forward, and they're like, do you come peaceably? Why do they say this? Well, if we're reading this in context, there's some stories before this where there's some stuff that happens. There's a guy named Agag who Samuel ends up killing. You've got to read the book, read the story, okay? But Samuel's done some things. Um, commanded by the Lord, and, and we have to reckon with those things, but you got to read the story there and go back. So he says, they said, you come peaceably, and he says, I come peaceably. I come to sacrifice. He doesn't come with a hammer. He doesn't come with a sword. He comes with a celebration to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and he is to make sure a guy named Jesse and all of his sons are there because he is on a, a royal scouting mission, right? Jesse, I'm here on behalf of the Lord to offer a sacrifice. Please go get yourself and the boys cleaned up and all ready. We are going to offer a sacrifice. I want you there. Consecrate yourselves. Come to me. Come with me to the sacrifice. So Samuel consecrates them, Jesse and his seven sons. Now this brings us to verse 6. Now comes the time. Jesse and his seven sons, they show up for the sacrifice. And Samuel, again, he's about his work of finding this new king. And, and first, he sees Eliab. We read this here in verse 6. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely, I mean, come on. Look at this guy. Here is the Lord's anointed. But what he looked on and saw as good with his eyes of flesh, well, that was not the plan that God had. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Hold up, Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now recall, when Saul was chosen, Israel wanted a king, and they wanted like the best of kings. And so they picked this tall, handsome guy, Saul. And it's almost like Samuel has that in his muscle memory. Surely this is a guy, check him out. I mean, you've got the GQ jaw, right? The Muscle and Fitness magazine frame. I mean, here he is. But don't let appearances fool you, Samuel. So next, dad calls the second most likely, Abinadab. He struts across the scene, but nope. Not this guy either. All right, there's more. Third, Shama. But we read here in verse 9, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then four more passed before Samuel. Number four, no. Number five, mm, no. Number six, no. Number seven, not that one either. Seven sons pass before Samuel. None of them are the one. So Samuel says, there must be another son. Because God said one of his sons is king. There must be another son. Jesse, are you holding out? You got another boy somewhere back in the shed? What's going on? Well, yeah, I do. 
but he's the runt. And by the way, I mean, he's keeping the sheep. It says here in verse 11, Jesse calls him in Hebrew, ha-katan. He calls him the katan, which Eugene Peterson translates as the runt of the litter. Okay, he's like, yeah, I got one, but he's kind of the runt. And that word in Hebrew doesn't just mean age or size. It means rank. It's talking about insignificance, being small, or being least. Oh, yeah, there's one more, but he's insignificant. He's the runt. He's lesser than, no need to bring the runtish one in, really. We should stop for a second here. I mean... The economy of the words and the storytelling speak volumes if we have the ears to hear it. Think of it. Jesse has just had Samuel, this famous figure of God, come to their small little village. Big deal. This is a big deal. So he consecrates his seven sons. And then they go to this celebration, which is going to be a big deal in their town, with his seven sons, David's not invited. And then when, when Samuel asks if David even exists, dad says his son is a virtual non-entity. What kind of family origin dynamics are going on here? This is messed up. You better believe, or at least it is easy to imagine, a formative father wound in David, which will play out in all sorts of ways within further stories, which we'll probably get to over the months. Now, Jesse might not see David, but God sees David. Samuel said, hold on now, go get him. We're not sitting down. We're not doing this thing until he is here. Now, imagine, this is going to be a little awkward, right? So they go and send for Jesse. I imagine they're just kind of like, Samuel's given like the prophetic stink eye to Jesse like he held out, man. And then eventually David, David comes. Let's pick up at verse 12. And he, Jesse, sent and brought him in, David in. Now he was ruddy, uh, most likely referring to the, the color of his skin because he is out in the field in the Middle Eastern sun all day long. And he had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of all his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up, went home, went back to Ramah. Now here is the man with the heart connection, the neighbor of Saul's that God would replace him with. But this king's replacement, he is this young field bronze shepherd boy who lived in anonymity and was overlooked by his family as a virtual non-entity. So you could say, in short, that God chooses the unlikely to do the incredible in unexpected ways. God chooses the unlikely to do incredible things in unexpected ways ways. God goes to the pasture to find someone for the palace. God is an underdog kind of God. He is really keen on bringing dark horses up into the light. He takes the unlikely. He does incredible things with them in incredibly unexpected ways. Why? Why? I mean, over and over and over again throughout scripture, we see this. Why? 
Well, it is just another way of showing that his way is not the way of human beings who think the way forward, the way to happiness, the way to victory is power and wealth and influence and appearance. But as Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now the reality is even Samuel here buys into this appearance mentality at first. Eliab, wow! The shoulders on that guy. He's like Kronk. Remember Kronk? Sorry, just watched it. And this is how Saul was, was chosen. He looked at the part. But God says, no, not this time. This king is my choice, not the people's choice. And I have a different way of seeing. I look according to the heart. It is Satan's way to get us looking at the glittering surface of things. To dupe, dismantle, and to destroy by dazzling appearances. And God wants us to see past the skin of things, to get beneath the surface of things into internal realities. God is concerned about your heart and your character. What happens in the dark within your chest or, or behind the walls or what you're doing when, when you're not with other people and you can put on a face. He, he doesn't care about your shiny and savvy appearance on social media. He cares about the contents and, and what your heart is attuned to and what's going on in there. Those things are all very much true. And I just wonder, are we aware of how deep within us the tendency runs to judge by appearances? Well, this text, by the way, I should say this, um, isn't saying that Saul was handsome and David was ugly and God wants ugly people <laughs> and rejects beautiful people. That is like, that's just a complete twisting of this. So God's not saying, sorry, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. I'm looking for somebody shorter and uglier. That's just how it works. That is not what's happening here. He's not choosing them based upon how they look. David's a good-looking guy. It's kind of funny. He's like, God's not judging by appearances. Psst, oh, by the way, David's like super tan and like toned from working in the field and picking up sheep, and he's got these really beautiful eyes, right? He's got these beautiful eyes. It just seems kind of ironic. But there's this inner beauty here that Saul doesn't have, a beauty of intimacy with God, some heart connection, which we'll get into, but I need to say this. Maybe it's not quite as it appears, Maybe it's not quite as it appears. Look, the, the Bible has this well-known verse that it's, it's said all the time. It's almost become this christian ease jargon. A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. We, we've heard this, right? A man after God's own heart. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 13, 14, where that comes from. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Here's what it says. This is about the kingdom being ripped away from Saul because of his disobedience and because he's not trusting the Lord. But now your, Saul's, kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So there it is. That's the origin, the source of that verse. But here's the question that I, I've been wondering um, as I've been studying for all these months. Why? Why is David a man after God's own heart? Like, what does it mean? It sounds nice. It sounds really Christian-y. But what in the world does it mean? 
Because let's be clear, there are a lot of cringy, dark, devastating moments in David's life. Right? There's a, there's a lot of ugly stuff going on. There's some seriously messed up stuff as you read through First and Second Samuel. So whatever this means, it certainly doesn't mean that David was perfect and he always did what was right. I mean, God knew full well David was going to fall hard on his face a number of times. So what does it mean? Well, as I was studying through the text, reading First and Second Samuel over and over, um, one, one thought came to mind regarding this. There's this chorus, there is this refrain that, that reverberates throughout these books. And I think it's a piece of what it means regarding the, the heart here. Um, so can I tell it to you? If you want to say no, we could just skip most of the sermon. <laughs> so just, you said yes. Okay. Um, here's the refrain. David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord over and over and over. Here's some of the examples. I won't read them all, but some of the places where we see this. David inquired of the Lord. In situation after situation, David wanted to know what God thought. What do I do? David wanted to know how God felt about something. David wanted to see the world the way God saw the world. He trusted that God could lead the way. He trusted that God could take care of what needed taking care of. He saw God as God, powerful, present, engaged, holy, worthy of worship. In other words, David was a man of unceasing prayer. He was talking to God first and most about everything. What do I do here? They raided the village. They, they, they took all the women and children and the, the men want to stone me. What do I do? David inquires over and over and over. That's all true. Um, and I think that's a piece that's really important that we know that about David. That's all true, but I think there's more to meets the eye, more that meets the eye here um, regarding these well-known verses. Okay, so let's, I, I want to meddle a little bit. Can I just get in and tinker with some theology and meddle here just a, a little bit? Um, it is simply an often thought what this verse means is that David was simply a really godly man with all the virtue in the right places, just hidden in a field, and God goes, there's the one who's got all the stuff. I just need to platform him so the world can see. Because it's there, I just need to platform it. But here, here's this interesting thing. There's something that, that's going on with a word there. Let's, let's go to the next slide where it says Dr. John Woodhouse. Um, so, so we read it as uh, a man after his own heart. But, but in Hebrew, it's, it's this preposition um, key. It's a key preposition, but the preposition is, is key. Um, and it's primarily meaning according to. So when we hear after, we think, oh, here's one that is just doing everything just like God wants. But the word there is according to God's heart. And I love this translation, Dr. John Woodhouse, this powerhouse Old Testament theologian, he, he says it this way, God sought out a man of God's own choosing, a man God had set his heart upon. Do you see what just happened there? How the emphasis flipped? The emphasis so often in our minds, the emphasis is on David and his virtue and David. And so God's like, oh, I'm going to platform this because this is really good and no one's seeing it. I'm going to use him. But the emphasis here 
when, when it's translated a little more literally, is the emphasis is on God's heart and on God's love and what's within the divine will and plan and sovereign love of God. Okay, so different, right? You starting to see the difference? So I know this is a little bit of a, a script flipper here, a paradigm shift, but it's important. So think of it this way. It's not so much that God was in David's heart, but David was in God's heart. Out of the love, the immense, glorious, eternal love of God, he loved first. God loved this David and is going to do something mighty with him by giving him his spirit. So it's a script flipper, I know, right? So go back to 1 Samuel 16, 7. And we, we get this idea of appearances. Now that's totally true. We look on external appearances. God looks on the internal. That's, that's true. That's kind of surface level. But might this be a little bit different? The text in relation to 1 Samuel 13. And then another text in 2 Samuel, which I'll get to here. The text is placing emphasis on God's heart choosing. Samuel, Samuel, you're looking with the eyes of man. You look with your eyes. I look with my divine heart. Because I am writing a story. I am doing something in history. And I choose David. Not that I'm going to just choose him because he seems to be a good candidate because he's doing good stuff. But I choose him. It's a matter of emphasis. This unexpected one I have chosen. Now if you're still like, wait, I'm not quite getting it. Let's, let's do this. It's worth it. I promise. I promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 20 through 21. This is David speaking later on. He says, And what more can David, what more can I say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your heart. According to the way you love and your plan, you've set all this up. This is the same sentence and the same words that was in the famous verse of after his own heart. But it's translated as according. It's the word, it's the word according to. According to God's heart. The emphasis is on God's heart. And if you really want to talk about this later, we can talk about after service. Even the Septuagint, the, trans, the Greek translation, it all aligns up with this, with the Greek words. It's fascinating. Here's why this is important. Well, wait, pause. I'll tell you why it's important in a moment. But the truth is also found in David's name. Some of you know this, so you can shout it out if you do. What is the, uh, the meaning of David's name? Beloved. Beloved in Hebrew, Dalet, Vav, Dalet. His name means beloved. David, unseen by his family, is the beloved of God. David, unchosen and unexpected, was chosen by God's heart because God first loved David. God was David's beloved because David was first God's beloved and God chose him. This comports with what we know of God. God loved us, right? We love because God loved us first. All of our response to God, any affection, any goodness that is within us is in response to his light shining on us and we reflect that back. And so let me put a point on this. If we get this backwards, 
Here's what we end up implicitly communicating with this idea, like David was in the field, he had the integrity, he had the skill of hand, I mean, he was just after God. And so God recognized it and was like, whoop, moves him forward. Do you know what is implicitly preached and taught in that? Well, let, let me say it this way. Um, man, David is a, is a lion slain, bear tackling, warrior poet, full of integrity and skill of hand, and God sees those things in him and says, I love you. You see what's happening here? Anybody in here, a, a lion slain, bear tackling, warrior poet, full of in, integrity and, and skill? It's not me. Oh, crud. How am I going to get this God to love me like he loved David? How am I going to get him to call me beloved? We implicitly preach a, a works-based salvation by trying to say David was this godly man, so, so God decided to use him and poured his love because David first had all this. Do you see the flip? Because if, if we're God's beloved because we perform, Guys, I'm out. If we're God's beloved because we're going to tackle all, all the lions and all the bears, man, it's like yo-yo salvation. You're in and you're out and you're in and you're out, depending upon the day. But if you're his beloved out of the eternal love and plan and providence and sovereignty of his heart, you're his beloved. You are chosen and his spirit will stay with you because you are a son or daughter of God. That is a radically different message than go, do really good in the darkness of your pasture, and then God will love you and lift you up to the light of the palace. It's a very different message. Now, let me be clear. David is a man after God's own heart because David is a man that is found in God's heart by his own love and his delight. God puts his spirit on him and God has so um, written David's life that it would be what it is and David does love this God and trust this God and inquire. Those things are true. But he loved because God first loved him. We have a hard time with this because one is a very man-centric way of seeing things. It's just kind of ordinary for us. The other is like, well, that's attributing a lot to God. <laughs> yeah, he's God. He is the fount of all that's good, beautiful, and true. Let's give credit where credit is due. By the way, this is not some weird kind of worm theology. This is, this is saying we are image bearers of God, and he has poured his love and his light into us. So cool. Now, okay, back to David's anointing. Did I just, like, jack up stuff for a bunch of people? Are you going to, like, send me emails? We'll talk. Uh, back to the anointing. Seven sons of Jesse have passed. Handsome, rugged, physical stature, right? Power, strength. But God has chosen none of them. And so Samuel anoints the eighth one, the eighth child. There David is, the scent of the field all about him. He's smelling sheepish, right? The runtish one is anointed in the presence of his brothers. The, anoint, the, the eighth son is anointed in the presence of his brothers. Verse 12 through 13. The Spirit of God rushes 
on David. It's a very forceful word. It's like a torrent of, of, of a river rushing to dwell with him the rest of his days. This is, this is new. Because before, God's spirit has come and gone. This is, this is new. The Ruach, the breath of God, who breathed out creation, who breathed life into the nostrils of the first human being, the spirit of life and love and flourishing, rushes onto this David like a river torrent from heaven. David will be a king empowered by the spirit. He is not called to lead on his own strength, but by relentless trust in the one who is with him. And so begins the journey of David, anointed to be king. He's going to go back to anonymity now for a while in the pasture. It will be years before he is proclaimed publicly as king. We could end right there. Boom. The call could be for you to be like David. And there's some truth. There's some truth to that. Some good things to draw out about you as a lesser than, about us as unseen by others, and about how God sees us that God can take us from the pasture to the palace, that God can choose unlikely people to do incredible things in unexpected ways. But in good conscience, we can't stop there. And this gets to why the sermon series is what it is and what I hope gets into our bones and our imagination. See, there must be another son. There must be another son. The first king of Israel, disaster, failed. So Samuel comes looking for another king. And with Jesse and his sons, Samuel says there must be another son. And there is another son. He is the eighth son. But here is what we must understand about this story and the Bible. It's all pointing a certain way. There is a grain to the Bible, a trajectory, a vector to the Bible. And that trajectory vector is pointing to who? To Jesus. Think about it. David becomes king. Oh, oh. And he's a much better king than Saul. There are so many points of glorious light attached to his story. It's just, it's epic. It's awesome. It's inspiring. And this, this David, he, he is a man according to God's own heart. But guys, he's just a man. A man who sins. David will falter. He will fail. He will twist things up. He will end up doing horrible things. But he will come back and he will repent. But even so, this mighty king cannot bring about what human beings need. This son called to the throne cannot bring peace to the world or to any human heart. There must be another son. Another son of God who will be the ultimate king. There must be another son who will crush the head of the serpent. Who will deal with evil. And this is how we have to read the Bible. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to read the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, we are promised that a seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent and will conquer evil and will make all things right and will re-garden the world. So this one's coming. Who is it? Is it Cain and is it Abel? It's not Cain. It's not Abel. Is it, is it Noah? He kind of has his own garden issues with his vine. Is it Moses? He doesn't get, even get into the physical promised land. It's not Moses. Is it Abraham? It's not Abraham. Is it Isaac? It's not Isaac. I mean, go through the list. Jacob or his 12 sons, Samuel, Saul, David, and the rest of the kings. There must be another son. 
See, as you read along the storyline, the Bible puts before us person after person that could be the promised one, that could be the king. Just like in, in Samuel here, that, that Jesse puts forward his son, and it's not that one. His son, it's not that one. He puts forward this litany of promised kings, of possible kings, but none of them are the one. And it, it's God's way of saying, look, there must be another son. We have to read the Bible this way as we go from Old Testament to New. There must be another Son, and then one day, and then one day after the centuries have rolled on and on, after leader and leader and leader have succumbed and fallen short to sin, comes the unexpected and unlikely underdog from what city? Bethlehem. And Jesus steps into the waters of the River Jordan, and God's prophet baptizes him and the heavens split open schizo they they split open and there is this rush of wind and this this dove like image comes and sets upon him and Yahweh says this is my David this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased there must be another son and here he is here he is There must be another son, one that's fully God, one that's fully man, the faithful son who will atone for the sins of the world and not fall into the darkness like everyone else has, the true shepherd, with true integrity of heart and with true skill of hand to bring salvation. Behold, God's David, his beloved See, the life of David points us to the true king. And that's what this series is going to be about, is how the life of David over and over and over again points us to Jesus. Both David and Jesus come from Bethlehem. Both David and Jesus lived lives in less than conditions. Both David and Jesus were mocked by their family, by their brothers. Both Jesus and David are unlikely counterintuitive kings. Both David and Jesus are anointed but are outcasts and have a hidden ministry and will one day go public. Both David and Jesus are on the run from a king who wants to kill them. Saul wants to kill David. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Both David and Jesus are anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Both David and Jesus are anointed in the presence of their brothers. David among his seven brothers. Jesus amongst his brothers in Israel there in the river Jordan. David became king at 30. Jesus begins his public ministry at 30. David was anointed by a man with a miraculous birth. Samuel, Jesus was anointed by a man with a miraculous birth. John the Baptist. David is called the beloved of God. Jesus is God's beloved son in whom he delights. Both David And Jesus, our shepherds, both fight serpents and overcome giants. Come back next week, we're getting into that. Both will unify God's people and bring a kingdom to a glorious height. Both bring abundance and provision. Both men are men of tears who are betrayed by those closest to them. And those closest to them who betray them die on a tree. Absalom and Judas. Because we could do this all day. It just keeps rolling forward and forward. Both look like they fail, 
But both return in epic fashion. Both David and Jesus were constantly inquiring of the Lord, both praying, Jesus always seeking his Father's will and only, only doing what he saw the Father do. See, David is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ that points us to the true king. He is a shadow that points us to the substance. The Bible over and over and over again, from Genesis one on, there must be another son. There must be one who can do what needs to be done. There must be one who can do what I cannot do. There must be one who fulfills these promises. There must be one who can overcome evil with good. There must be one chosen out of the very heart of God to show forth the glory and the goodness of God who has planned the salvation, the lamb slain from, from the beginning of time. And there is. There is the Son of God. And it's him who we proclaim. It's him who we preach. That's what the pulpit's for. That's what the church is for. We believe the Bible is the God-breathed, humanity-pinned, story-shaped library that leads us to Jesus. And as we look upon him and see the glory of how it all points to him, it fills us with joy. This is what apprentices do. We look upon Jesus we feed upon him and we tell others and we live on the joy drawn from the wells of salvation. And each one of us, we've looked to Eliabs in our life, to Abinadabs and Shema's, things that we thought were king. Man, they're going to leave you empty. There must be another son. And there is. It's Jesus. So may we be a people whose imaginations are so reshaped and baptized that we see the scriptures is always pointing to Jesus and it does something to us it dilates our souls with that that light and we can see clearer and live more in line with him by the power of his spirit may we delight in his written word that shows us the word who is Jesus the chosen one so he is our shepherd and because of it we lack nothing surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, you've chosen Jesus as your beloved son to be our savior. He has saved us because of this great plan you have orchestrated. And we are chosen in him not because of the skill of our hand or the integrity of our heart, but you loved us while we were in our darkness, while we were in our dark pastures, and you brought us up into your courts, into your palatial light, that we might live in your presence and be your image bearers. Father, may we see the beauty of Christ through your word today. May you be honored. May you be glorified. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.